Uh, Father, thank you uh, that you have brought us here. We thank you for uh, this wonderful speech by Stephen. We ask you to use uh, his words today, which you inspired uh, to build us up and to draw us closer to your son. And we pray, I pray that you'll help me as I preach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Stephen, the deacon, is on trial for his life. He's been charged with four things. We saw that last week. Blaspheming God, blaspheming Moses, speaking against the temple, and speaking against the law. And if he's found guilty, he's going to be stoned. In his defense, he retells Israel's story, Israel's history. And so far, the story that he's told, at least as he's told it, makes two things clear. First, the the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, they're all good. They're good things. God introduced them, but God has never been bound by them. He appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia before any of them existed. So the purpose that the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices seem to serve, that is to make peace between God and and sinners, there must have been, or there must be something else that has actually served that purpose of making peace between God and sinners all along, or there would have been no meeting between Abraham and God in Mesopotamia, and at least not a meeting that Abraham survived. That's not, a, that's not a knock on the temple, but the temple points to something greater and beyond itself. Second, when it comes to, to recognizing saviors, Israel has a horrible track record. They're not good at it. The patriarchs, the, the fathers of the 12 tribes, of Israel uh, threw their brother Joseph in a pit and handed him over to Gentiles to be, to be enslaved. And Joseph was the one that God appointed to save them and to save their families, to save Israel from starvation and death and to give them bread and a home in, in Egypt, at least for a while. They rejected their Savior. And then was, as we saw last week, 400 years later in Egypt, God raised up Moses, a Hebrew who became a prince in Egypt by adoption. But Moses understood very early on that God had appointed him to deliver Israel from bondage, to deliver Israel from slavery. So when he saw an Egyptian beating a fellow Hebrew, a brother Hebrew, Moses struck down the Egyptian. But his people, Israel, didn't understand. Who made you ruler and judge over us, they said. They rejected the one God had appointed to set them free. They're bad at recognizing their their saviors. Now, we shouldn't be smug about that and say, what's wrong with all those Jews? Why can't they recognize, recognize the savior? We can't be smug because, as John writes, The light has come into the world, the whole world. John tells us this in John chapter 3. But men and women 
loved darkness instead of the light. So the problem isn't just with Israel, but Israel helps us see the problem. Israel's story is, in many ways, ours too. So now, let's pick up with Moses still in in verse 30, where we read, Now when 40 years had passed... Now Moses, after he killed the Egyptian, he realized everybody knows I've killed this Egyptian. So he ran away from Egypt to the east and he settled in Midian where he met Jethro and his daughter Zipporah and he married Zipporah and they had kids. And Moses lived there shepherding uh, sheep for 40 years. Now he left Egypt at 40 years old. So now he's, he's 80. Now, I'm only 52, or 51, I lose count. I think I'm 52. You lose count after 40. You just don't pay attention anymore. So I'm I'm already, as far as I'm concerned, I'm already done with major life changes. I don't want to move anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to uproot myself and do anything major and big. I, I just really want to sit in my chair and read my books until I die. That's really all I want to do at this point. Now, when I'm 80, I'm, I'm sure that that's what I really want to do. I want to sit there in my book, in my, with my chair and read my books until I die. Hopefully, I won't be dying yet. But maybe it was different for Moses because he understood way back at 40 years old that he was supposed to be the one to set his people free from bondage. And, he, and, he, and he's waited now for four decades for God to say to him, go back, go back to Egypt and save your people. I imagine that in those 40 years, every year of those 40 years, I bet that the anxiety and the worry that he had for his people grew. Because it's not just his people in some kind of abstract sense. His mom and dad are back in Egypt under the yoke of slavery. They they probably died by now, but they died under the yoke of slavery. And, And his brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, they're there still under the slaver's whip. So it's very personal. He's 80, but, but I'll bet he's, he's ready to go and that he wants to go. So one day he's out there shepherding his sheep and we learn in verse 30 and 31, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses saw it. He was amazed at the sight and he, as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Now, if you, uh, if you go back and you read the account of this in Exodus chapter 3, you'll see what caught Moses' attention as he, was, as he was shepherding his sheep. There was a, a, a bush was burning out in the middle of nowhere, and there hadn't been any lightning storm or anything like that, nothing that would cause a fire. So that would be, that would be strange just to see a bush burning. But if you, if you notice that the burning bush isn't burning up, that, that it leaves, the, it just leaves the, its branches, its trunk isn't being consumed by the fire or even singed, well, that would be, you would want to, I would anyway, want to get a closer look. And Moses wanted to get a closer look too. Moses had never heard of anything like this. You probably have, by contrast. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Jews from the exile who were, thrown, who were in Babylon, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had them thrown into 
his fiery furnace. And, and he did that because they wouldn't bow down to this giant golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar made. Probably a statue of himself, can't be sure, but a big statue that he made. And they, they wouldn't bow down to, to, this, to this statue. And so he had them thrown into the furnace. And the furnace was so fiery, so hot, that it burned up the, the soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their clothing wasn't even singed. Their hair wasn't even singed. And the reason for that is that there was a fourth man in the flames with them. Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan emperor, looking on and watching this thing, said that the fourth man looked like a son of the gods. Moses, I think, sees the same man there in the bush. Stephen tells us he's an angel in the bush. But in Exodus 3, uh, it refers to, it calls this angel the angel of the Lord. Now, if you read your Old Testament, and I hope you read your Old Testament, if you read your Old Testament, uh, you'll see that the angel of the Lord comes around pretty often. And when he does, people do things like make sacrifices to him. And they honor him and they worship him like they worship God. And the angel of the Lord, like other angels, doesn't say what other angels would say normally, which is, hey, I'm just an angel. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. I'm just a creature like yourself. I'm a servant like yourself. The angel of the Lord never says that. And there's a reason that he doesn't say that. Uh, just as Abraham is getting ready to, to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22, we read this. The angel of the Lord called to him, Abraham, from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Turns out, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. But he's also the angel of or from the Lord. And you might ask, how can he be of God and also God? That's a great mystery. That's a really good question. But you repeat that mystery every single Sunday we come together. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. It's the Son. God the Son is the angel of the Lord. God the Son speaks from the, from the bush. And he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now remember, and Stephen wants you to remember this, he wants the people who are listening to him to remember this, there's not a tent. There's no tabernacle yet. There are no priests. There's not a temple. There's no sacrifices yet. God made himself known to Abraham in Mesopotamia without any of that. And here God appears to Moses without any of that. God meets Moses in the wilderness. Now, you can get the wrong idea from this. And some people do get the wrong idea from this. 
uh, you know, the, thinking that Stephen's point is something like, you know, God's just really casual. He's, you, you, he's so informal. He's not, he's, you don't have to do all the fuss. You, you, can just, you can just kind of casually go up to him. He's, 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 I guess he kind of, he's for, a little formal maybe, but, you know, he wears the, the tuxedo t-shirt because he also really likes to party, uh, as Cal Naughton Jr. tells us. But, but that's not Stephen's point. His point is, that, is not that God's really casual and, and informal. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, as some people think he's saying, that you don't need a church because God hangs out in the wilderness. That's not his point either. We'll see what his point is. It's connected with what God says after that. Take off your sandals, says God. You're on holy ground. Why does he have to take off his sandals? Nobody knows for sure. There's lots of theories running around out there. But the theory that makes most sense to me is, is that your shoes clothe one of the most humble and vulnerable and creaturely parts of your body. And so taking off your shoes before God acknowledges your, your weakness. It acknowledges your frailty. It acknowledges that, that you need to be clothed. Moses is standing on holy ground. Ground set apart. Now he's on Mount Sinai, uh, and much later, God will meet Moses there in a fiery cloud and a thundering storm. But the, the, but the mountain itself, the mountain in itself, isn't holy. It's not the soil. It's not the bush. It's not the rocks. The only thing that makes the ground holy is that God is there. That's it. This building, these, these pews, this pulpit, that table... It's wood, it's brick, it's mortar. The bread and the wine, that communion, it's bread and wine. It's not in itself holy. But the angel of the Lord, God the Son, meets you here in this body, in his word, in, in the sacrament, just as he promised to do. So, so whether you feel it to be true or not, it's true. You are on on holy ground, keep your shoes on. But you are on holy ground. Kevin DeYoung tells a story about this. Uh, what, it, what, it's, what, it, what it's like when, when you are on holy ground, but God's holiness isn't veiled. He was living in some remote place, I think in the Rockies, doing some research for something, not sure what he was studying. He's a pastor now, I don't think he was studying for that out in the Rockies. But, but he, every morning he'd go on a run, and one morning, he was huffing, puffing down the trail, and he sees this, this huge carcass, this huge dead animal. It looked like a moose or, a, or, a, or an elk. Didn't get close enough to tell. He could tell, though, that, that the, the kill was fresh. It just, it had, it, it, the thing had just been killed. And, and whatever killed it, he could tell, had teeth and claws and had to be very large <laughs> and he noticed as he was looking at the thing that the, the thing hadn't finished eating yet because the carcass was completely intact which he reasoned means it's, it's probably still nearby maybe I spooked it when I showed up 
it's probably nearby and it's probably watching me right now as I'm, as I'm sitting here or standing here in front of this, this carcass. And he said immediately uh, he felt the hair on his neck you know, stand in on, in on end and he could barely, he could barely breathe. So he, used, he could feel the eyes of this thing watching him. He was in the presence of something very large and very dangerous and that could kill him very quickly. Now, from all the accounts that we have in Scripture, that's a taste of what it's like when God appears and gives a human being a glimpse, a taste of his glory in in a visible or visceral way. For your sake and for mine, that's usually veiled. But when it's not veiled, there's, there's fear, there's trembling, and horror even. Because God is so utterly beyond the capacity of our minds to grasp, or our strength to control, or our will to resist. And he sees. His eyes are on you. He sees right through the the veil that you and I put up between each other. You don't know my thoughts and I don't know your thoughts. You just know what I tell you. But he sees. In his presence, everything is exposed. He knows. He he sees the hidden and the dark places of your heart and all those are dragged into his light and he could slay you in an instant. So when Moses hears the voice, I am, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, of course Moses trembles and he hides his face. What should a sinner do and what should a sinner expect in the presence of a holy God? A a sinner should expect accounting, justice, Wrath, death, because God sees. But then notice what God sees in verse 34. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I'll send you to Egypt. I've seen the slave driver and the whip and the lashes, the bent backs straining under heavy loads, the cruel commands and ruthless penalties. I've seen the babies exposed and the mothers bereft. I've heard the weeping and the the groaning. And I've come down. There will be mercy now. There will be comfort now. Now is the time for breaking chains and silencing the whip and lifting the burden. Moses trembled and he hid his face because, like Isaiah, he knew himself to be a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. If you spend a lot of time if you spend a lot of time in self-examination, 
and I'm talking honest self-examination, by the pure light of God's law, you will not, in the end, love what you see. There's corruption. There's ugliness. There are things you do and you know you should stop doing and you maybe try to stop doing but then fail to stop doing it and then try again but it only gets worse and you know he sees it. So you can, even as a Christian, you can begin to think to yourself, won't God punish me? Isn't he angry with me? How can God love me? When you feel like that, and I think everyone here has felt like that, when you feel like that, do not lose sight of this great truth that you see in this text. God says it here. I've come down to deliver them. He's come down to deliver you. You sit here on this holy ground before God who is a consuming fire. But you're not consumed. Because there's a man with you who has the appearance of the Son of God because he is. At at a single point in history, the angel of the Lord took on your flesh and then he clothed himself in your sin and your guilt and gave himself over to death and to torment and to be consumed in your place because he loves you. And he's come down to deliver you. His sacrifice at that one moment in time provided the everlasting, all-sufficient satisfaction for the sins of the whole world throughout time. God applied Jesus' sacrifice to Adam and to Eve and to Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and the prophets and the apostles and Stephen and you and me. And, and, And Jesus, John tells us in Revelation, is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That means his cross is the spring of salvation that flows all the way from the Garden of Eden to the city of God, of which you are citizens by faith in Jesus Christ, and from which spring you drink free without cost because he paid that price. This is why... God appeared to Moses in the bush and not a hair of Moses' head was touched or singed because God has come down to deliver. Stephen continues in verses 35 to 37, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now God's God's choice to send Moses back to Egypt for his people overturned the verdict that his people rendered upon Moses. They said, no, we don't want him. 
And God said, well, you're going to have him. I'm sending him back. The one that God sends is not really that hard to reject. If I were asked to design my perfect ruler and judge, he'd be around five foot seven. He'd be around 51 or 52, I lose count. He'd have gray hair and a beard. He'd go to bed when I go to bed. He'd wake up when I wake up. He'd spend all day doing what I do, and he'd read what I read, and he'd agree with me when I make decisions. And he would love whatever I do. And I, I would name him Matt. That would be a great name uh, for my ruler and my judge. So, so when, when God doesn't send Matt, but sends someone who says what God says and does what God does and loves what God loves, my truth says why should he be ruler and judge over me? But God's will is not subject to my truth. God sends who he sends. But do notice the language. Israel says, verse 35, who made you uh, ruler and judge over us? But God, who has every right and reason to appoint a ruler and a judge. Notice he appoints a ruler and a redeemer. Now, redeem there could be translated using an older word that we used back in the olden days, uh, ransom. Because there's a, there's a notion of payment in this word. If you owed somebody money and you couldn't pay him back in the ancient world, you'd have to be that person's slave until you paid off your debt, unless someone came along and paid your debt for you, ransomed you. That's, that's the notion here. But you should notice, if, especially if you've read the, the, the account of what happens with Moses and, and Pharaoh, you should notice that God doesn't send Moses away from the burning bush with a lump of cash. Uh, uh, Moses, go to Pharaoh and give him this money and, and pay for the freedom for our people. Moses doesn't purchase anyone or anything from Pharaoh. God brought plagues and, and death to Egypt by Moses. In fact, the, the only ones who paid anything to set the slaves free were those lambs who were slain. They purchased Israel's freedom with their blood smeared on the doorposts. After that, after that, Moses led them out with signs and wonders, the plagues, the parting of the sea, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock. Uh, Stephen here is, is, is drawing his listeners' attention to what he's going to say in verse 37. Uh, do you look, if you look at verse 37, you see the quotation marks there. That's because he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Forty years later, when Moses is 120, and definitely probably wants to die by now, 120 years old, he's in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says this, to the people of Israel. Uh, the Lord said to me, this is God saying this, God saying this through Moses, I will raise up for them, Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth and he'll speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he'll speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. A prophet 
like Moses? And we should ask, well, who, who would that be? Is it, is it maybe Joshua? Because God did raise Joshua up right after Moses within Israel. And if you remember, Joshua led his people through the waters of the Jordan, like Moses did the Red Sea. And Joshua gave commands to Israel that came from God. And Joshua led God's people into the land of promise. And when Achan, for example, you can look this up yourself, but when Achan would not listen to the commands of God through Joshua, God required it of him. But... Joshua never mediated a covenant. He never instituted sacrifices or a priesthood or a tabernacle. God never fed people bread from heaven or water from a rock under Joshua's leadership. Joshua didn't set his people free from bondage. Joshua's face never reflected the glory of God shining like the sun. Nor was he ever rejected by his people. And so that's why the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the, and the people of Stephen's day, they know the prophet, like Moses, wasn't, wasn't Joshua. And they're still waiting in Stephen's day. Where, where is he, they wondered in Stephen's day. Why, why hasn't God sent the prophet like Moses yet? If only God would send the prophet because, because he'll establish, they knew he would do this. He'll establish a new covenant promised through Jeremiah. And he'll feed us with bread from heaven and living water. And he'll open the eyes of the blind. And he'll raise the dead. And he'll set us free from our oppressors and lead us into all the promises that God promised us. When will God send this prophet to help us? Meanwhile, as they're wondering, the tomb that had shut up the one they crucified, was empty. And Stephen, standing there, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to them about the prophet, like Moses. You have the same kind of perplexity with people today. Uh, The world is in terrible shape, people will say. And they're right, it is. People are doing awful things out there. And yes, they are. Why hasn't God done anything? Why hasn't God done something to fix this place? I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm afraid, I'm depressed. And I'm trying to escape this looming sense of guilt that hangs over my head. But nothing I try gives me any relief. Why hasn't God done anything? Why hasn't God sent anyone? They ask as they drive by the building with the cross on it. As they walk past the preacher on the street. As they shut down the relative who won't shut up about Jesus. If they only knew. If they would only see. Jesus is the one who has come down to deliver us. This is the one, verses 38 through 40, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses 
who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him. Read through Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which is where the Exodus account is mainly located. It's depressing reading. God parts the sea and he rescues Israel from slavery and then they, they're out, they get on the other side and they're hungry and so God gives them manna and then they're thirsty and so God gives them water from a rock and then they want meat so God sends millions of doves to fall dead in their camp and they get meat. Uh, but the whole time, all the time, all through the account, the people are all, all saying to themselves, man, this is horrible. This is terrible. Remember, you, you remember Egypt? Man, Egypt was great. Those were good times back there in Egypt. We had some wonderful times. We ate the good food. We had the, the onions and the, the pots just full of meat every day. It was wonderful. And we didn't have to listen to this Moses guy shrieking in our ears all the time, who, who's literally leading us out here to kill us. Let's kill him and go back to the good life in Egypt. And so they thrust Moses aside in their hearts. Hey, you know, Moses goes up to Sinai to, to meet with God for 40 days. And, and during those 40 days, God gives him the law and he gives him instructions for the priesthood and for sacrifices and for the tabernacle. Those are all, the, the, all of that is the living oracles, the living words from the living God that give life to those who receive them. Meanwhile, while he's up there, the people decide, hey, he's been gone a long time. What a... We don't even know what's become of him. Aaron, make us gods who will go before us and take us back to Egypt. That's, that's where all of our gods lead us. Sure, they promise you pots of meat and pleasure and flourishing. They give you slavery and chains, and burdens you can't carry. Now, uh, when the sky grew dark and God came in wrath to wipe Israel from the place, face of the earth, Moses fell on his face before God, uh, and he said, Forgive them, Lord. Have mercy on them. And God, knowing that Moses would pray such prayers, having sent Moses to pray those prayers, forgave his people for Moses' sake. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, the people sitting in judgment over Stephen, uh, they also really wanted to be free of the one God sent them. They really wanted to be free of Jesus. They, they remembered the comfortable days they had before his word rang so shrilly in their ears and laid bare their souls. The people too, they heard Jesus and they weighed Jesus and they measured Jesus by the desires of their hearts and they found him wanting. Trust in me, he said. Turn from yourself, he said. I'll set you free from sin and death, he said. But we've never been slaves of anybody, they said back. They, they thrust him from their hearts. They crucified him. And he gave himself up to be crucified because he had come down to deliver them. The Lamb of God came down to pay 
your ransom with his blood. And so he did. So that for you who have not thrust him from your hearts, for you who draw near to him, his fire burns within you and you're cleansed but not consumed. Your heart by itself is a barren wilderness full of rocks where nothing grows. But your heart has become holy ground because the angel of the Lord dwells there with you forever. Let's stop and pray. Father, we thank you for Stephen and for this retelling of our, 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 all of our story. We thank you for sending your son to deliver us and to pay our ransom. And we pray that you would give us grateful hearts today as we remember that. Uh, we pray for those who do not yet know or believe in him, Lord, that you would um, draw them close and open their hearts and minds to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.